the Bible is a book full of unsolved mysteries. Are you looking to finally make sense of it all? Join our weekly conversation and think about the Bible like you never have before. Listen, watch, and interact with us at ChristianQuestions.com. You're listening to Christian Questions. Here's Rick and Jonathan. W. Clement Stone once said, Truth will always be truth, regardless of lack of understanding, disbelief, or ignorance. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Folks, we want to thank you for joining us today. This is a contact-friendly format, and we welcome your thoughts via email, messaging us at ChristianQuestions.com, Facebook, and our website chat board. So, Jonathan, we've got quite an interesting subject for today. What is it? Well, Rick, our question is, can zombies possibly be real? And our theme text is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Okay, so can zombies possibly be real? October brings autumn, and autumn brings a major change of seasons. Leaves brilliantly change color as they die. The harvesting of crops comes to its end, and the colder weather sets in. It's at this time of nature closing up shop, this time of things dying, that Halloween and all that comes with it is celebrated. It's funny. The origins of Halloween were based in serious concerns about the spirit world, and now it's all about fun, candy, and parties. Some of the season's most successful phenoms are zombies. Yep, zombies. <laughs> I love the, love the word zombies. <laughs> zombies are supposed to be the undead. They terrorize the world around them with their hideous appetite and their contagiousness. So what is the deal with these guys? Is there any possibility that they could be real? Where has our fascination with the whole zombie thing brought us? Does the basic idea of the undead even fit in with biblical teaching? So, Jonathan, yep, today we're talking about zombies. Never thought we'd ever get here, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but sometimes you got to go down some odd roads. So, folks, coming up in today's podcast, there are actually ancient writings that refer to the dead being raised and eating the living. Okay, there are ancient writings that talk about that. So does this verify that zombies are factually real? And by the way, trivia question, when was the first zombie movie ever made? We're going to get to that pretty soon. The Twilight Zone, you remember this series, Halloween and zombies, they all share one very specific thing in common. We're going to find out what that one thing is and why it's so important. And yes, it has a basis in fact as well. And now, what about the Bible? Does it in any way verify zombie theories? God actually is amazingly specific and clear in his description of death. We're going to uncover what he said and its meaning coming up as well. But first, let's take a walk through some important Halloween history, because it actually sets the tone for the rest of our podcast. And Jonathan, it almost sounds strange to talk about important Halloween history, because for most people, Halloween is just a bunch of fun. That's right. 
it's about chocolate, I thought. Well, you know, and I, I like to think of it that way myself. You know, I, 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 I use Halloween as an excuse for chocolate consumption. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, the history of Halloween, though, is very, very different than what we look at and what we, we, we get a sense of now. Halloween right now in the United States of America is the second most spent upon and popular holiday. Only, only Christmas uh, is is beyond it. So, let's do. Uh, let's go to a, a soundbite from Life Noggin. Why do we celebrate Halloween? And he gives a very good, quick overview of where Halloween came from. History of Halloween? Well, it's believed to originate way back in the day of the ancient Gaelic festival of Samhain. People would ward off ghosts by lighting bonfires and wearing spooky costumes. Neato. But where does the name Halloween come from? Let's find out. Way back in the 8th century, November 1st was designated as a time to honor all saints by Pope Gregory III. This was known as All Saints Day, and it incorporated some of the traditions of Samhain. The night before All Saints Day was referred to as All Hallows' Eve, which later turned into Halloween. So this is where the name comes from. But let's talk a little bit more about November 1st. Why is it so special? Well, this day marked the end of the nice and toasty summer months and the beginning of the dark and cold winter. This time was often associated with human death, and the Celtics believed that on the night of the 31st, the boundary between the living and the spirit world would become blurred. Okay, so he went very quickly through a lot of things, and it was really focusing on November 1st, which was All Saints Day as of the 8th century. And the interesting thing about that uh, is originally All Saints Day was in the in the spring, and it got moved because they were trying to attract pagans into the uh, in, into the church. And so, whenever you try and do that, and you begin to water down anything that you had that might have resembled truth, and it gets worse. Okay. Oh yes. So. All Saints Day, All Hallows' Eve, that hallowed day, it's the evening before, and weirdness was supposed to be happening on that evening, and we'll, we'll get into that uh, coming up in just, just a few minutes. But here's the thing, Jonathan, so much of this has to do with darkness and death, and the insecurity that the, those two parts of life would naturally bring. This insecurity is massive, and the further a society is from God and his word, the more challenging darkness and death become. Fortunately for us, God has ordered things, so it's much easier to put it in perspective. Psalm 104, 19 through 24. He made the moon for the seasons. The sun knows the place of its setting. You appoint darkness, and it becomes night in which all the beasts of the forest prowl about. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they withdraw and lie down in their dens. Man goes forth to his work and to his labor until evening. O Lord, how many are your works! In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. So let's just take a few minutes on this before we get back to the Halloween stuff, because this is important. First of all, paganism is very seasonally oriented. They've got certain celebrations that are that based on the summer and winter solstice and the spring and fall equinox. And so 
what this scripture is starting out to telling us is that first, God made the moon for the seasons. The sun knows its place of its setting. You appoint darkness, it becomes night, and that's when, you know, scary things can happen. But the point, Jonathan, is God made the moon, God made the seasons. There is a natural cycle that he put in place. That's right. Absolutely. So with that natural cycle, what the scriptures are saying is, remember who made that stuff. Because the problem arises when we start to worship what was made rather than he who made it. And we're going to find that in just a second when we get into the some of the Halloween history here. So this is an important point, kind of like a kickoff point for us. God made it all, and God deserves the credit and the and the um, adoration rather than the seasons themselves. Let's go to just a very few lines on Halloween uh, from religioustolerance.org. Samhain was a fire festival. Sacred bonfires were lit on the tops of hills in honor of the gods. The townspeople would take an ember from the bonfire to their home and relight the fire in their family hearth. The ember would usually be carried in a holder, often a turnip or gourd. They felt nervous about walking home in the dark. They were afraid of evil spirits. So they dressed up in costumes and carved scary faces in their ember holders. They hoped that the spirits would be frightened and not bother them. Wiccans and some other neo-pagan based their religion faith on the religion of the Celts. They continue to celebrate Samhain today. So Samhain is the fire festival that is Halloween night. And it wasn't so much about candy and trick-or-treating. It was about spirits. It was about the, the worry that the spirit world could infiltrate into the physical world on that night because of the uh, the, the fall equinox and that the layer, the, the, the veil rather, between the two worlds was thinner. Now, I'm not sure I know what that means, but that's, but that's what they believe. <laughs> right, right. So, and it was a scary time. Our jack-o'-lanterns, you know, when you hollow out the pumpkin and you make the scary face and you put the light inside and all of that, that was based on turnips or gourds that were used as lanterns to walk home that night. The scary faces that were carved were to try and scare the spirits away so you could get home safely. So this was serious business way back then. And Rick, with the darkness and the the change of the season, especially in this fall time, you know, many people have this, the phobias about the darkness and yeah. how dark it is in the morning and how dark it is at night. And, and it affects them physically. Yeah. Um, so you can understand that fear drawing in, can't you? And, and you know, and you're right. And, and the further you get from God, the more the darkness becomes fearsome because there's too many unanswered questions in the dark. Let's go a little bit further. The whole idea of gods and spirits interacting with humanity 
does have a basis in reality. And Jonathan, we were talking about that uh, last week when we were talking about how do demons influence our world. Again, all of the perversions of these things really do go back to Satan as the father of lies. We're going to touch on that a little bit later, but let's start here with Exodus chapter 34, verses 12 to 17. We'll take it in pieces. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather, you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall not worship any other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. So God is telling Israel before they go in to inherit the, the, the promised land, when you get there, you are not to make covenants with those people that live there already. You're not going to be engaging in what they engage in. Rather, you have to destroy their religious altars and all of those things because you are not to be involved with that. And these were pagans of that time. Now, God's people are walking in, and God is saying to them specifically, don't get involved in this because it's idolatry. And they had already been given the commandments, okay? First couple of commandments are pretty strong about no other gods before God, and only God is, is the one that we worship. And he keeps saying, take the things down, don't let them exist, because this is your land that I, God, am giving you. Verse 15. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods. So basically, God is saying to Israel that you are my people, and if you go into that land and you allow your sons and, their, and daughters or, or anybody of, of your people to, to get involved, you are involved in spiritual harlotry. And that's pretty serious stuff. That is. So, And he's saying that's not something... That, that you are allowed to do because you are my people. Let's finish the verses. And someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice, and you might take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You shall make yourself no molten gods. So God is very specific. He's going round and round on this, avoiding of idolatry thing. And he's being very specific and very clear to his people that you are not to get involved in these things. And Jonathan, these things are the basis for what we're talking about with Halloween and, and all this other stuff. That's right. God is saying, you're going to be separate. This is a fresh start in the land. Don't be infected with what is there. Right. So there's traps, Everywhere yes. around you, and God is warning them ahead of time. This is the, these are the traps. This is what they look like. This is what they sound like. And these are the roads that those traps will bring you down. So He's not just saying, "Hey, you know, by the way, there's a couple of booby traps. You know, uh, just just beware." He's telling them all about it, and He's saying, "Don't go there, because it is Godless." And that's. This is going to serve as a basis for the rest of our conversation once we really get into the zombie part of things here. So, uh, Jonathan, you know that soundbite we played earlier on uh, from Why Do We Celebrate Halloween? Do you remember the last line of that soundbite? 
Yeah, definitely, Rick. It said, the Celtics believe that on the night of the 31st, the boundary between the living world and the spirit world would become blurred. Okay. The boundary between the physical and spirit world gets blurred. It gets confused. It, it, you can't figure out where one ends and the other begins. This is important because this is part of what ends up happening with the whole zombie idea with the fire festival called Samhain uh, that was uh, part of Celtic tradition. And, you know, and we're not talking about it much today, but, but Wicca, Wicca is white witchcraft, is steeped in all of these things. Well, what are they and, and how do they all work? You know, obviously, what we as humans do not know, we imagine. And when it comes to death, our imagination grows. So darkness and death were mysteries to many cultures. What is the connection with zombies? We're podcasting live every Monday night from 8 to 9.30. You can talk to us direct through our chat at ChristianQuestions.com. We also welcome your comments or questions any day of the week. Just hit the Contact Us button. We're now out of the starting gate. Let's pick up the pace for tonight's topic. The connections with zombies with all of this is are plentiful. First, let's establish where the idea of zombies came from, and then we can make some connection. The bottom line is simple. The bigger the parts of life are that we don't understand, the more vividly our imagination will rise to fill the knowledge gap. And Jonathan, I, I, I hope I repeat that many times <laughs> through this podcast. The bigger the parts of life we don't understand, the more vividly our imagination will fill the knowledge gap with thinking and ideas so that we don't have a void in the whole picture. So let's put some of the zombie history together. Uh, there is history when it comes to zombies, and that's kind of a weird thing because until I looked into this, I really thought that zombies were just like, somebody's got a really wild imagination and they wanted to make money making a movie, and so that's where it came from. But no, I couldn't have been more wrong on that. This is from news.discovery.com, and this is an excerpt from a history of, quote, real zombies. Go ahead. Though many people treat the current zombie apocalypse as a fun pop culture meme, it's important to realize that some people believe zombies are very real. Haitian culture, like many African cultures, is heavily steeped in belief in magic and witchcraft. Belief in zombies is related to voodoo religion and has been widespread throughout Haiti for decades. The existence of zombies is not questioned, though believers would not recognize the sensational Hollywood brand-eating version that most Americans are familiar with. Yeah, you know, we have created brain-eating zombies, and it's, it's, just, it's like, you know, it, it always comes down to can you top this? You know, and, you know, let's like extreme sports. Sports aren't good enough. You have to have extreme sports. And then you have to have the extremity of the extreme sports. We'll say it's the same thing with zombies. You have to have extremity in all of these things. Um, so there, it, the Haitian culture is very, very steeped in magic and witchcraft and has a belief in zombies. 
Um, and, and also just a, a two-line quote from a History Channel documentary that we actually referenced several years ago when we're talking about zombies in another uh, podcast. Zombies first appeared in one of the earliest works of literature, the Epic of Gilmash. I will raise up the dead and they will eat the living. The dead will outnumber the living. Yeah, okay. So the Epic of Gilgamesh. This is an ancient Sumerian story, okay? Uh, way back, very, very ancient history. And, you know, a lot of times, Jonathan, we look at things that are that ancient and we think, wow, if it's that ancient, it must be true. Oh, often people do that, yes. <laughs> because it's been around forever, therefore. But here's the thing. Back in those days, and, and before we get to this particular story, I just want to give an, another example. Back in those days, you had writings and stories and fictitious things always being told as, as tools of manipulation because that's the way humanity in a fallen state works. Just a quick example of that was in, in Nehemiah's day. Um, when Remember when Nehemiah was building the wall? And uh, I forget the guy's name, his enemy was trying to trip him up and trying to get him to, uh, to stop building the wall. And he tells Nehemiah, okay, I am going to, if you don't, if you don't come and meet with me, because it was a trap, if you don't come and meet with me, I am going to send out a news flash, essentially, about you, and I'm going to tell people how corrupt you are and how you're taking people's money. It was all lies. That was fake news. Okay, we talk about fake news now, and, you know, is that fake news? That was happening thousands of years ago. So... Ancient writing doesn't necessarily mean what was written about was true. It means it was written about for potentially for propaganda or to manipulate or just to entertain. Now, who knows? So here, here's a, a fictional story that sows the seeds of a new perception of reality. And this is a little bit about the Epic of Gilgamesh from Wikipedia. The story centers on a friendship between Gilgamesh and Enkidu. Engidu is a wild man created by the gods as Gilgamesh's equal to distract him from oppressing the people of Uruk. Together they journey to the Cedar Mountain to defeat Humamba. It's a monstrous guardian that's Humamba. So they're going to try to defeat this, this, this guardian. Later they kill the bull of heaven, whoever that is, which the goddess Ishtar sends to punish Gilgamesh for spurning her advances. So basically, Jonathan, this is an ancient soap opera here. It certainly is. <laughs> okay. All right. As a punishment for these actions, the gods sentence Enkidu to death. Then you have the zombie thing formulating out of the dead not being really dead, but coming back and eating people. Okay, that's part of where zombies actually came from, ancient Sumerian writing. So we're talking thousands and thousands of years old. So yes, you have some absolute history behind it. That's important to remember, okay? There is definitely history. There's no denying the fact that there's history. So with that, let's get to the next point here. The trivia question? Yes, the trivia question. When was the first zombie movie ever made? Now, a lot of people go back into the 1960s and the 1970s, and there's several movies in, in that era, and they think, well, you know, that's where it started. But, and I was surprised to learn that those were like, pff, pff, those, are like that's, those are like new, new, new. The first zombie movie, I think, and I think this is, is factual, ever made was called White Zombie. It was made what year? 
1932. 1932. And, you know, you don't think about those times with this kind of, um, of, of, of subject matter. So we actually found, you can find anything on YouTube. We found a trailer. <laughs> From this 1932 movie, and we and and look, there's some parts that are a little bit gross, so we cut a few of those parts out. And we're going to play play part of the trailer from the movie White Zombie from 1932. And the reason we're playing it, I mean, it's entertaining, that's for sure. But the reason we're playing it is because it helps to explain the zombie phenomenon. And you've got to take the pieces that are given to us as explanation, and when you put them together it suddenly makes a whole lot of sense. So, yes, it's entertaining, but there's some really important things to learn from this very strange, strange um, trailer. So let's listen. From Haiti, land of the voodoo, comes the most infamous cult of all, Bela Lugosi as Murder Le Gendre. I see death. Master of the undead. The sinister power behind the white zombie. This soul killer takes men from their graves to be his slaves. His instruments of terror and now this fiend plots to possess a woman, captive in the borderland between life and death. Her brain drained of the life spark. The white zombie obeys the unholy commands of her demon master. That's quite a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> it certainly is, and very dramatic. Yeah, well, 1932, you know, and but see, the the interesting thing is, describe zombies this this and Bela Lugosi, you know, he played Dracula in in all of those movies from that time. So you know, he was the classic evil villain guy in in movies. Uh, he plays this uh, this evil professor who is able to somehow or other take men from their graves and make them his slaves. And so zombies were essentially, in that era, in that movie, slaves, sort of mindless slaves uh, that were would terrorize other people. But there's a specific line, Jonathan, in that, in that soundbite, that trailer, that's really important. What is it? Well, Rick, it's captive in the borderland between life and death. Okay, and it's talking about the white zombie. Now, for some reason, apparently, now I didn't watch the movie, so I don't know this for sure, but apparently zombies were all men until he was going to make this one woman a zombie and drain her brain of the life spark, and and she, her brain would be captive in the borderland between life and death. This is important to understand the principles of how zombie culture got started okay and it's interesting that in fiction we take basis of facts and build our story and we're going to see how this works tremendously as we go through this now okay so now we're going to build the case for where zombies come from the common thread that we see between the insecurities of the celtic culture that we talked about and belief in zombies and other cultures is the borderland 
And the, the, from the soundbite from the first segment, Jonathan, what was that? It was the boundary between physical and spiritual life. The borderland and boundaries between. You get this point. This in-between stage is common, a common place of vulnerability. And we're going to introduce a soundbite that we actually used a couple of years ago when we talked about this on liminal um, activity. And you think, well, what, what does that mean? Uh, Richard uh, Schechner. Richard Schechner uh, is going to be defining liminal for us, at least the beginning stages of it, here in this soundbite. Well, liminal is a term uh, first used by Arnold van Gennep, a Belgian folklorist at the turn of the century. He wrote a book which was published in 1908 called Le Rite de Passage, Rites of Passage. And that's a very, you know, it's a term that everybody kind of knows. And in this book he said that uh, rituals, or especially rites of passage, rites which change people's status, have three phases. The uh, separation phase, where a person is taken from their own old status, but also taken from their old place, taken from their old time, their accustomed place and time. You have to do it in a special enclosed place and time. And the liminal period, the, which means limin, like uh, on a door frame, that which is not in this room or in that room, but between rooms. So this in-between time and space. So, and, and I want to expand on that because we're not going to refer back to him anymore. And he's talking about the, 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 the time in between. And one of the examples he uses of, is, is of graduating college. He says, well, you know, somebody finishes the curriculum at college and they've passed their courses and they have essentially graduated. But they're not graduated yet until they get their diploma. And they don't get their diploma until the ceremony, which is maybe two weeks later. So they're in a liminal state. They're all through... But they can't move on. They can't go back. They can't go forward. They're stuck in between. That's the concept of liminality: is being in between on the threshold. That's that's a you know in in a in a house you go cross the threshold. If you stood on the threshold, you're not quite in the house. You're not quite out of the house, but you're right in between. Let's take that thought and now go back to the whole picture here because we were talking about the borderland. And the boundary in between, we're talking about liminality, being in between. What's that got to do with zombies? Everything. Okay, Let, let's, let's build a little bit more now. We can see that being in between, this liminal place or circumstances plays a significant role in vulnerability and what we perceive to be true because you're in between. You've left what you were, you're on your way to what you will be, but in between there's that blurred area. So what does this have to do with the Bible? In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were in a liminal period. First of all, it begins with just Adam. Let's, let's go to the scriptures. Genesis 2, 15 to, 6, 15 to 17, I'm sorry. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Okay, so this is pretty simple, isn't it, Jonathan? And clear. It's yep. a command from God. And, um, you know, it's simple, clear conscience. Uh, so, so and he, there's, there are consequences if he goes against what God said to do. Right. So he's telling him what's right, what's wrong. And he says, if you do wrong, you're going to die. He doesn't say too much else. It's just, it's pretty simple. And, you know, in the original uh, Hebrew, it's, it's dying, thou shalt die. So 
Um, but, you know, here's the thing. The story was just beginning to unfold. Eve hadn't, wasn't there yet when, when this command was given. So this is a liminal period because the whole picture is not yet unfolded, but God presents a command, a very straightforward command. Eve is then created. They're in the garden and with the named animals and their guidelines were in place and their life together was just beginning under the blessing of God. So you've got Adam and Eve. You think, okay, it's not liminal anymore because there they are. But yes, it is. Because here, listen, listen to what happens. Genesis one twenty eight. Now this is once they're created and they've uh, acknowledged their place in the garden. Here's God's blessing to them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So he's given this wonderful blessing, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. They had not yet become parents. So the picture wasn't yet complete. They had not yet had dominion over the whole earth yet. They had dominion over the garden, but not over the whole earth. So the picture was not yet complete. But the blessing was already put in place. Like, this is where I want you to go and what I want you to do. So they were in a liminal state. And when someone's in that in-between state, they're vulnerable. Remember, zombies are supposed to be, quote, undead. That means they're somewhere in between living and dead, some in, in that blurred area. Halloween is about the night where the, where the space, the veil between that world and this world, according to the traditions, is blurred. It's liminal. It's, it's in, the thinnest. Right. It's in between. So, Jonathan, there's a, there's a, there's a phrase, uh, you know, when, when somebody is going to be very brave, like, like evil Knievel. Mm-hmm. What's the, the phrase? Death-defying act. Yes, the, or the death-defying feat. I'm yes. going to perform this death-defying feat. Well, we're not going to talk about death-defying feats, but we are going to be talking about death-defining facts. Because if we don't understand death, we can't get the answer on zombies or anything else. So what's our first, first death-defining fact? The idea of zombies was from ancient pagan writings and carried through time into highly superstitious cultures. Okay, so it was there, it was old, it was well documented, you know, and, and as many, many cultures developed, you, you know, we've used uh, Haitian culture as, as an example, we have Celtic culture, those two cultures are not related. Okay, they're, they're far, 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 Ireland and, and Haiti, you know, you're just not going to, just going to, you know, take the next flight from one to the other in, in ancient times. So you've got these cultures that have these ideas, and they all have to do with in-between. It's historical fact that they had the thoughts and they were afraid. What are they afraid of? Two things. Darkness. They were afraid of death too, right? Right. Death and darkness. Those are the things that they're afraid of. And in that fear, you develop ways of describing and explaining what it is you're afraid of and why you're afraid. This is important if you want to understand zombies. So zombie stories do have history. But just because something has history doesn't make it historical fact, does it? We know Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. But what happened with the dying thing? 
Talk to us during our live Monday night podcast from 8 to 9.30 every week. If you're listening through our app, just hit the message button. If you're on ChristianQuestions.com, click on chat at the bottom of your screen. As our discussion continues, it is inevitable when we start to answer questions that more questions appear. Let's see how this expands. This is actually the crux of the whole Halloween night thin boundary between the worlds thing, as well as the whole undead zombie borderland thing. Being specific about what life and death really are solves all of the questions and will solve all of the fears as well. We just need the right answer. And see, this is the key, Jonathan, and this is why we're taking time to develop this. We want to understand this liminal period that and and again, you know the, the the old TV show, The Twilight Zone. Yeah, you know Twilight is what is in between. <laughs> it is. It's absolutely in between. So all of these things refer to in between. There's. It's not a coincidence, and that's where the insecurity and the fears come from. So let's get back to some scriptures now and part start start to put this in order. Let's let's examine how death was described when God pronounced it as a consequence. So when he pronounced it, Jonathan, was it presented as something questionable and mysterious, or was it made plain? It was made plain. Simple, straightforward. Right. That okay. was it. Okay. Just, you eat that fruit, you will die. God even further explains what that means, and we'll get to that in this segment. Adam and Eve needed to, by God's grace, go through the learning curve and tests of their life responsibilities, as God will always test those to whom he gives authority. And again, we talked about that last week with Satan, you know, in the demons thing, and Satan having authority in, in the earth, and he was tested. God didn't take his authority away, but he tested him. See, it's kind of interesting. He gave it to him, and he allowed it to play out. Same thing with Adam and Eve. God didn't take their authority away, but he still tested them. And there were consequences, just like there were consequences with Satan. So let's get down to this, because God always tests those to whom he gives authority. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. We're going to take this in pieces. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Okay, so we're starting with the serpent. Satan is speaking through this serpent. And that sounds pretty weird and strange in our day, uh, but Satan had authority and he had power, and, and that's what he did. And he so so. First point, John Jonathan, who does Satan start the conversation with? Well, it's Eve, and it's not Adam, who actually Rick was given the command. So Adam was given the command before Eve was created. Yes, and we don't have a scripture that tells us that it was repeated to both of them. No, so. Satan addresses Eve because she's the one that sort of came into the, not sort of, did come into the picture later. So what, what does he do in his conversation with her in the form of this serpent? Well, Rick, Satan opens the door to possibilities by leaving out a key detail. Okay, so he said, Let's go back over what he said. Indeed, God has said, this is Satan's words, You shall not, uh, shall you not eat of any tree of the garden? It's like, isn't this whole garden for you? Didn't God put you here so you could enjoy the whole garden? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. However, 
<laughs> right, right, right. So let's go to Genesis chapter 3 now, verse 2 and 3. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Go ahead. Well, Rick, I had a question. Because what she responded with, I don't remember God saying this to Adam, that you weren't allowed to even touch it. Do you, do you recall that as being one of the uh, you know, important things not to do with this fruit? No, no, it, it wasn't part of what we know in Scripture. So we, we can conclude a couple of potential answers to that. First of all, she gives a good answer. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. She reveals her knowledge of the tree. She re- reveals its location. She knows where it is. And, and, then you, and then the point that you brought up, not touching it is not allowable. Now, maybe, who knows, maybe God repeated it to them and it just wasn't written and he said that. Or maybe when Adam is discussing it with her, saying, God has given us all of this, but he said of this tree, you, we can't eat. He said, maybe, and they're talking about it, and maybe they concluded, and, you know, this is my imagination, okay? Maybe they concluded, well, you know what, let's not even touch it. Let's not. Let's just make sure that we stay away. To me, that sounds kind of like a good way to to keep yourself uh, on target. And, and Rick, she knew not to go there. I mean, that was the bottom line, right? And that is the point. She knew absolutely not to go there. So we're going to get to what happens with Eve in a couple of minutes here. But let's take another moment and let's take another look at another movie. We're going to follow the zombie history through movies just just a few just just a very very few the one movie that most people point back to as the big zombie movie was the movie called night of the living dead and it was made in when was that 1968 Rick. 1968 okay so again we're going to play a piece of the trailer of the night of the living dead for the purpose of following the evolving story of zombies through enter- the entertainment industry. And it's important to follow the evolving story because you, you, a lot of times we build our reality based on what we're told and not what's true. And this is proof of that. Let's listen. Welcome to a night of total terror. <laughs> Night of the living dead, the dead who live on living flesh, the dead whose haunted souls hunt the living, the living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. And it goes on and on and on. But the interesting thing, Jonathan, is in this take on the zombie thing, what they're talking about is the fact that the zombies eat the people. They feed off the living. Right. And, he said, and it's their bodies, okay? And in the first one, it was more, much, much, much more about they were slaves. They were the mindless slaves that were just all about uh, terrorizing and, and, and death. So there's, there's kind of steps going in a very specific direction. And to be frank, the steps are going in the grossest direction possible. 
because that sells tickets. Okay. <laughs> you know, and that's really what we're looking at. And, and folks, remember a lot of our zombie culture is built on what sells tickets. Not what's true, not what we can verify factually, but what sells tickets. Just saying. So let's get back to Adam and Eve and Satan. Satan sought to get the human race to follow him in his rebellion. And it's interesting, Jonathan, he lied while he was speaking truth. How crafty that is. That's the most effective kind of lie, is when you couch it in the middle of truth. And here, um, so he, he well, let, let's read Genesis chapter, uh, chapter 3. Let's go to verses 4 and 5 right here. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So he's telling them, telling Eve specifically, first, he, he starts with a lie, right? Yes, you surely will not die. Now, God said you will. That's right. You will surely die. <laughs> right. So one of them is wrong. Very, very wrong. And then he says, he speaks truth. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened. And you will begin to understand good and evil like God does. That was true. That was true. So he couched his lie with truth. And when you put a lie with truth, oftentimes it sounds more reasonable, more palatable, more, yeah, I guess I can understand, I can accept that. And so, you know, you've got new, logical, alluring voice here that arises in contradiction to the voice of God himself, and it can easily feel... I want to stress feel like a voice of progress to bring us further enlightenment. It's not. So we have to be really careful because this is Satan taking pieces of truth, mixing it with a lie so he can become the authority. He wants Eve to listen to him rather than God. He is contradicting God, but he's also complimenting God as he contradicts him because he's using some of God's truth in his lie. And it sounds like, wow, this is a really great way to make progress in life, to get to a higher level, more enlightenment. And who wouldn't want more enlightenment? So, Jonathan, what's Eve's reaction? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Okay, there's several things in this, in this verse, and, and this verse... You know, there's three things that happen uh, to Eve in this, in this verse. First of all, it says, The woman saw the tree that it was good for food. That had to do with the physical body, okay? This is good nourishment, and, you know, I can use that. So there's rationalization. What was the next phrase? Well, um, it was desirable to make one wise, Right. Well, before that, though, it was the delight to the eyes. Oh, delight to the eyes. Yes. So it's something that you look upon and it's very, very attractive. So it has this fleshly uh, benefit and it really looks good 
And then on top of it all, it can make me wiser. I mean, look, John, let's be honest. Who wouldn't want to be nourished, have something that's just wonderful to look at and appealing, and it's going to be, you know, help you become more wise? Why wouldn't you want that? Exactly. Well, because God said no. <laughs> well, and, and, and see, and again, what has this got to do with zombies? Stay with it, because remember, Eve is still in that liminal state. She's still in between. She's still learning. She hasn't yet had the, a, a lot of experience, and so there's a lot of vulnerability. But this reminds me of a scripture in 1 John 2.16. Uh, do, do you have that? Yes, I do. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Good for food, lust of the flesh. Delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes. A tree that was desirable to make one wise, the boastful pride of life. Those three things, Satan was so good at his deception that he put all of those things to, to, to get her hook, line, and sinker, literally. So Adam and Eve, in their new and yet-to-be-fulfilled life, go down a path of learning, but they've chosen the wrong teacher. You're right, Rick. But also, when you follow anything but godly righteousness, it will always end in death. You know, and, and that's, a, that's a simple statement, but truer thing has never been said. Anything but righteousness always ends in death. It may take a while, took Adam 930 years, but you end up in death. So what was the consequence, the full consequence of disobedience for Adam, the father of us all? Let's go to Genesis 3 again, verses 17 through 19. And here is where we get the clarity on death. And we're going to take that clarity and look at zombies and see if the two match. Genesis three seventeen through 18 to start. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. So God is telling Adam part of your penalty is you're going to really have to work hard for your sustenance. It's not going to come easily. It's not going to be planted for you like I've planted the garden for you. This is God speaking. But you are now going to have to go plant amidst thorns and thistles, which incidentally I don't have in this particular garden for you now. So that you're going to have a difficult time. Uh, and you're going to be have to draw your sustenance from the things that you plant and the things that you harvest. So now we get to the real, real crux of the consequence. Go ahead, verse 19. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Okay, let's pause right here, because this is really important. Can zombies possibly exist? The theory of a zombie is they're somewhere in the in-between between living and dead, right? Right. Okay, that's the theory. That theory is what Halloween's all about. The veil between the spirit world and the fleshly world is, is thin and, and, and ghosts of, 
of uh, or spirits of of relatives and so forth come through and all of this stuff because they're in between. Does God leave any in between in this description? He does not, Rick. He said you're going to return to where you came from and that is dust. You'll be dead. So, is he talking about the body? Is he saying your body is going to return to the ground? He's saying he will completely return to the ground. So the, the point is God is not separating out some ethereal soul. No, he's, he's saying not. you, again, let's read the verse, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Not your body, but till you return to the ground because from it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the fact is, the human body is made up of the elements of the earth. It certainly is. <laughs> so, again, we need to go through our, to our next death-defining fact. What is it? So, mankind will return to the elements, not just your body, you. Death is defined here as simply going back to the pre-life state, which was clearly the absence of life, dust. Okay, so the interesting thing is, now Satan said you will not surely die. So Satan introduced a death-defying feat. He lied. God defined death clearly, saying you, simply stated, you will return to the ground. So this puts the, the whole dying thing in a whole different perspective. And when you think about it, looking at death this way is very different than much of Christianity, not to mention most of the world. Are we really saying that death is not some altered state of being, but simply the absence of life? There's a lot of talk program topics out there. If you're burnt out on Capitol Hill and Trump, don't worry, we never go there. But if you're looking for unique ways to look at the Bible, we'll make you think about how today's world ties into Scripture like you've never thought about before. Thanks for listening, and get ready for us to take a deeper dive right now. We are unequivocally stating that death is the absence of life at every level. Now, we need to test that thought with other scriptures. It's great to find a scripture that seems to be plain and simple, but it's always necessary to make sure that the rest of the Bible agrees. So, Jonathan, you just can't take one scripture and say, here it is. I've built the whole doctrine, and I've got what I believe, and that's it. No, that one text must, by definition, fit with the rest of the scriptures. So let's start with the Old Testament for this segment, and let's let's go through, and, and look, this is a deep study, and we are just going to touch on several, several things, lots of other material, and seek your on the bonus material uh, to get you started, and we've done other podcasts on this subject uh, in, in much greater depth. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, this is where man has his beginning, and let's just kind of observe what's going on here. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Okay, the uh, 
the King James Version says man became a living soul. In the New American Standard Version, it says man becomes a living being. The word for soul or being, what's the, what's the definition? Rick, it means a breathing creature. Okay, it's very simple. Does it say man was given a living soul? No, he, he became one. He, he wasn't given a soul. Okay, so the idea of being brought to life, the physical body, makes that physical body a living soul. Right, a living being. That's right. right. Body plus breath equals soul. Okay. All right. So now that's simple. And so we're saying that man doesn't have a soul. Man is a soul. Right. Because that's what Genesis says. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and again, we're, we're drawing simple conclusions based on simple scripture. So let's test it. Every, every step we need to test it. A good test would be to see what other life forms were called beings as well. And we're going to go to King James Version. It may not use the word being, but it uses the exact word nephesh, which is the, the Hebrew word for soul, in, in these verses. Genesis 1, 20 through 21. And Jonathan, when you get to the words, just pause and say what the King James says and then sort of insert being because it's the exact same word. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature, being, that hath life the fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature, being, that moved, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. So the interesting thing here is that the same exact word that's used that says man became a living being is attributed to the moving creatures of the earth and all the, the, the creatures that, that fly in the air and the great whales and the living creatures that move in which the waters brought forth. So It, it makes sense, Rick, because it's a body plus a breath. So in that sense, then the animals and humanity are the same. Yes, they're living. They're a being. Okay. So all life forms fit into one definition, breathing creatures. So right. again, now we're going to have to test it further, okay? You, you always have to, con- it's, especially with something that's a little bit different for a lot of, a lot of Christians listening, like, what are you talking about? Let's test it further. Let's, let's, let's dig a little bit deeper here. Um, and again, more in CQ Rewind, the bonus material, uh, you can easily get the CQ Rewind at, at ChristianQuestions.com. And it's a transcript of the the program, partial transcript with a lot of graphics and illustrations that help to put this all in perspective. And you can see the scriptures that we're we're talking about, see the references and and how it all works. So before we go another step further, Jonathan, let's pause and let's go back to zombies because they're so much fun. And uh, (laughs) let's jump to 2013. This is the movie World War Z, and apparently Z stands for zombie, I guess. I never saw the movie. But this is a Brad Pitt movie, and uh, in this film, zombies were not once dead, but they are regular people who are infected, and they become zombie-like creatures. But, you know, a movie made in 2013 is very different than 1968 or 1932. So here's just a 30 seconds of the, the trailer for World War Z. 
They're coming. You know, and it's interesting because, and again, I haven't seen the movie, but it looks like the, the, the zombies are outnumbering the, the regular people. And that's kind of what it said in the Epic of Gilgamesh way back when. Uh, but here, you know, the, the big thing is these zombies are brain eaters. So it went from servants of evil, you know, sort of mindless servants of evil, to those that eat people. And now we're focusing on eating brains. And, and you know, my, my point is it gets more gross as you go. Why does it get more gross as you go? Sells more tickets. That's why. It, the whole zombie thing is about selling tickets. And we're taking a fictional story written thousands of years ago and building upon it and changing it and making it more dramatic so we can sell more tickets. The whole zombie thing is not at all real. It's just, there, there, there's no sense of reality. As we go through the scriptures, that's what we're finding. So I just think it's interesting to follow the evolution of zombie culture and see how it gets more and more dramatic because we can make it more and more dramatic. Let's get back to the scriptures, though. If all life forms fit into one definition, then death should be the absence of life for all of those life forms as well. Is that the case in scripture? And the answer is actually yes. We're only going to touch on just a few scriptures, but Jonathan, this next scripture is my favorite scripture that, that defines death. My very favorite one. Ecclesiastes 10.1. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink. So a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. Why is that my favorite scripture? Because it's talking about dead flies. And a fly, <laughs> I mean, okay, you know, I don't like dead flies, okay? Let, let, me, let me explain, okay? Let me explain. The word for dead in relation to flies is the same word for dead in relation to humans. And my point is that a fly dies and a human dies and it's the same absence of life. That's why I like that scripture, because it's about flies, a very basic, basic, basic uh, life form. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5. For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything, neither have they any more a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, Solomon is saying in Ecclesiastes, the dead don't know anything. That's right. They're not able to think. And so, and now look, that goes beyond the zombie thing because the lights are completely clicked out. You know, right. when, you, when you turn out the lights, that's it. There's no juice to that bulb, and no matter what you, you can wish it to, to, to light, you can, you can beg it to light, you can pray to God that the bulb will light. But unless there's electricity going through the wire, it's not going to light up. So the idea is that the dead don't know anything. A few verses later in Ecclesiastes 9, Solomon essentially 
uh, repeats that theme. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whether thou goest. And I, I like that verse, Jonathan, because it directly relates back to what God said to Adam. From dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. Solomon is wrapping it up here, and he's saying, look, when you have life and vitality, do the things that are before you that you can do. Because once your lights are clicked out, there's no work, there's no device, there's no knowledge, there's no wisdom in the grave. And that's where you are going. That's not where your body is going. That's where you are going because you have gone out of existence. Now, I want to pause here just for a second because there's always a question about the spirit, there's a big difference between soul and spirit, okay? That's a whole different conversation. But, you know, there's a scripture that talks about the spirit goes back to God. And that's that, that, that spark of life goes back to God. And I believe, Jonathan, and I know you, you believe as well, that God has our DNA in his mind. And come resurrection, that DNA it can be easily recreated, and he can recreate our whole being out of what once was. That's how, right. How does he do that? I don't know. Can he do that? Absolutely. Will he? Just watch. It's coming. Coming soon to the earth near you. <laughs> Psalm chapter 6, verse 5. For in death there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave, who shall give thee thanks? So another scripture that's telling us that death is death. And again, it doesn't fit the zombie picture, does it? No, not at all. Not even remotely closely. And, and so part of this exercise is to take the fear away of those things that, that we have created in our multimedia society that gives us things to be scared of. You know what? A lot of times people love to be scared. That, that adrenaline rush with, with fright is apparently something that a lot – I don't really like that so much myself, but I know a lot of people who do. Genesis chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. This is an, a really important text. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. So this is talking about during the flood, the great flood of Genesis and it's saying that all the beings, man and animal alike, in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, died. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Here it's saying that they all, man and animal alike, died in a similar fashion. It's an important text that helps us to understand what death is. And God explained it originally. So if he said, from dust thou art to dust thou shalt return, he's saying you're just going back to the elements. That's, that's the message. All of these scriptures are telling us exactly the same thing. Now, a lot of times we like to separate the death of the body with the separation of the soul. Okay, It's not a scriptural concept, but a lot, a lot, of, a lot of Christians like to do that. Second Kings chapter uh, 8, verse 5 equates the death of a body with the death of a person. Let, you know, let's go through this and we'll put it together. 
And it came to pass, as he was telling the king how he had restored a dead body to life, that, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life cried to the king for her house and for her land. So it starts out by explaining he had restored a dead body to life. And you say, okay, you're resuscitating a body. But then the further description is her son was, was restored back to life. He was given life back. Life was absent from him, and he was given it back. So the son is the body. The body is the son. The two work together, and Elisha was, was, was um, uh, being given credit for this bringing life back into this, to, to this boy. It's the same thing. The body and the life, you can't have one without the other. They, the, the two go absolutely together. One more scripture of this segment, Jonathan, this account of a yet-to-be-fulfilled prophecy, so this is future, confirms that souls can be destroyed. Because a lot of times, you know, the, the idea of zombies, you know, is, is, you know, it's really hard to kill them, too. You know, you see, you, you see it in the movies. They shoot them, and they keep coming, and you, you know, you chop off their arms, and they keep coming, and you chop off their legs, and they crawl after you, and, you know, it's like, well, what are you going to do? Well, it's not, it's not real. It's not even close to real. Ezekiel 18, verses 2 to 4. What mean ye that ye use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, saith the Lord God, ye shall not have occasion any more to use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine, as the soul of the father so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. So, Rick, based on this scripture, since Adam, how many souls have sinned? Uh, 27? <laughs> no, everyone. Every, billions and billions and billions except for Jesus. So, the conclusion is all souls are beings die, right? Yes. Right. Absolutely. They have earned that because of the disobedience of Adam, and that's what we're born into. So we have to understand that the body and the soul aren't separate, and that means that the zombie thing can't be real. And so if you have this, this internal fear of such things, look at the scriptures and say, you know what? It's a fear of an imagination. That's what happened in the Celtic culture, it was imagination that they were afraid of. That's what happened in the Haitian culture. It was imagination that they were afraid of. And those things would manifest themselves, and a little thing goes a long way when, when people are afraid like that. And, and just really quickly, Jonathan, there was one, one time very... Um, Several years ago, my, my daughter had some of her friends over, and they were watching a scary movie, and I was downstairs with them, you know, sort of, uh, you know, just, just hanging out with them. And after the movie ended, you know, they're all like, they're, they're kind of scared, and I'm sitting, I'm smiling, and all I did is I just, it got quiet, and I just banged on the floor, just hit my fist on the floor just, just once, and they flipped out. <laughs> because they were in the mood and the mode for being scared. That's what we build ourselves up to. It's like, oh, something's in the room. Yeah, it was me. I'm sitting here. I just banged my fist on the floor. That's all I did. That's what happens to humanity. The imagination carries us, and then we see something as a, a manifestation of it, and all of a sudden it's bigger than it really is. So what's our death-defining fact here? 
According to the Old Testament, the whole zombie thing is simply not possible, and we have nothing to fear regarding departed spirits or souls. Nothing to fear. It's really, really, really that simple. So, think about it. It is a pretty boring way to describe death. You just can't make movies out of sleeping in death. Obviously, we need to now focus on the New Testament. Does it agree that death is the absence of life? If we asked Rick, Jonathan, and the CQ contribution team to answer our topical questions in five minutes or less, rather than in several chapters over 90 minutes, they'd probably get a little stressed out. Plus, they love painting that bigger picture by looking at several real-world media perspectives, historical facts, and scripture. That's why some answers may come quickly. But we love taking a look at the bigger questions that aren't so easy. Thus far, the evidence is pretty convincing. God described death as simply as a returning to the elements, and the Old Testament bears out that all beings, both human and animal, meet the same end in death. One especially important key to the New Testament understanding is realizing that it is built upon the Old. So, Jonathan, it's really important to put it in perspective. We want to test the scriptures. We want to test the conclusions. We started out with something simple in Genesis. We went to several Old Testament scriptures to test it. And now we have to go further and test it some more. Because you just don't take a scripture and say, well, this is what this means, so everything has to fit into this. It all has to dovetail together. Before we go to the New Testament test, though, Jonathan, there's another test coming right around the corner and that's Trish. She came up here. She must have something important to say. So, Trish, go ahead. Okay, I just um, observation or question, I suppose. From what I'm after listening to this, what I get the impression is that uh, Christianity has really bought into this um, idea of being in the in between. That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're right, and and I think that that's a that's an important observation to make because we have this departed soul thing, and you know, and Jonathan, in in some denominations, you had mentioned something in our preparation. That's right, Rick. A lot of Christians fail to study and understand the beauty of resurrection, and that's something I think we need to discuss. You know, you lose the beauty of resurrection when you have souls that are hanging around. Because, like, right. what, what do they need to be raised for? Because they're already there. They're still alive. And, and you know, and, and you know, then there's the purgatory thing. Incidentally, purgatory is not scriptural. There's nothing in the Bible that says anything like that. So, you're right, Tersh. It's confused and to such a degree. And you know what it comes down to? Satan's lie. So it comes down to accepting that lie and creating a blurred middle area where there is none. So thank you for that observation. Very good. Okay, let's do the New Testament, Jonathan. Soul. The word for soul fits exactly with the definition of a being as defined in the Old Testament. The word for soul in the New Testament is suke. Uh, and what does it mean? The animal sentient principle only. And that's exactly like the Old Testament. Man's soul slash being is the man. Not just his mind, heart, or strength. That is the man. Luke ten twenty seven. And he answered, said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. 
You know, and I love that verse, and I love to take the word soul there and, in, and insert the word being. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, your very being, what makes you click, what makes you tick each day should be that with which you love God. Interestingly, Jesus' soul being was sorrowful, even to the point of death. He himself said it, Matthew twenty six, thirty eight. Then saith he unto them, My soul being is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. You know, and when you say that, my soul is sorrowful even unto death, and when you realize and, and you know, we're gonna to touch on this scripture in a few minutes, but you know, in Romans six twenty three it says the wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life. And it says that, you know, when a man dies, God described it as you go back to dust. And, you know, it's kind of kind of sad to talk about, but you decompose. That's what happens. You decompose. You know, when, you know, the Egyptians and other cultures spent a lot of time and effort mummifying the, the, the bodies of those that would go into the, quote, afterlife to preserve them. But, you know, thousands of years later, you unwrap those mummified things and, and they're, they're a little bit more uh, intact than something that wasn't mummified, but they're still decomposing. That's the bane of death. My soul is sorrowful even unto death. Jesus freely offered his life, his soul, his being to die as a ransom. John 15, verse 13 Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life, his being, for his friends. You know, and, and so there's a, there's a, when, when you look at death and life in this light, where the, uh, the absence of life equals death, it really gives you a sober sense of what Jesus actually did a very sober sense of the sacrifice and death that he faced as a man. It really is an amazing, profound level when you look at that sacrifice and you think, wow, he went that far. You can't go any further than that. And by God's grace, he was raised because he was faithful. So just an amazing thing. And again, back to the zombie thing because I don't want to lose sight of it. And, and just one thing, Rick, before we head there, that was a hero's accomplishment. Yeah. Jesus was the hero. He gave his all. He gave his ev- everything for Adam and his posterity. Right. He laid it all down on the line. And it was because he gave his life so fully that he could, that he had the right to buy back Adam's life so fully. And everyone else is included in that because it all started, death began with Adam and death eventually ends with Jesus. It's a perfect, perfect equation. Uh, the loss of life in death is the same as the loss of a soul in death. Acts twenty-seven twenty-two. Now I exhort you to be of good cheer for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you but of the ship. 
loss of any man's life. That's the same word for soul. Or being. Right. So, you know, when you think about lost souls, and, and you know, just a quick story along those lines, I, I, th- I was telling you before the, the podcast, um, I was uh, a teenager. I lived in Boston. I went to trade school in Boston a uh, long time ago, way back in ancient history. You know, and um, I was walking through Boston Commons, big, big, big green in Boston, beautiful, beautiful area. And there was a guy there who was a, you know, he had a, one of those sandwich signs. He, you know, he was dressed in white and he had the long beard and he was an, an end of days kind of guy, you know, saying the world's going to end and you better repent. And so I'm reading, he's got all scriptures all over these signs on his front and his back. And I asked him, because he's talking about, you know, you're going to burn in hell and all this kind of stuff. So I said, well, what about the scripture that we read earlier about the soul that sins, it will die? You know, now I'm I'm thinking, okay, that's a scripture in the Bible, and I can't imagine how he's going to answer this. And he looks at me and he says, son, there's a lot of dead souls walking around this earth right now. Of course, I'm a teenager. I don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll never forget it because, you know, you've got to create a fiction to fit the thinking of Satan's lie. Without the fiction, Satan's lie can't stand. And so now, you know, thousands of years later, we've got these dramatic fictions that include zombies, <laughs> you know, in terms of the undead. Come on. It's not scriptural. It's nothing to be afraid of because there is no in-between. It's you're either alive or you're dead. Okay? It's it's a very simple thing. So, Jonathan, now we come to the next step uh, in the zombie evolution, well, Rick, remember the first three that we, we already talked about. First, they began as the dead brought to life um, by a god. Then, second, they were brought to life by a man. And third, they were men who were infected. Now what? Now we get to a point where the zombies end up being the good guys and the heroes. And how do you do that? You go to Disney. <laughs> oh. because Disney always does that. They make the bad guys into the good guys, and they take the fiction of zombie, and they make the zombies the good guys. The, the Disney, and I, I, this is a new movie. It's called Zombies. All right? Here's part of the trailer for that movie. And then, you know, once we play this, Jonathan, it's a, it's a fascinating sort of end result of the evolution of zombieism in our world. So let's listen to this. There's a picture-perfect town called Seabrook, where one small accident led to a cosmic event. A mysterious green haze changed the fate of the world. Touched by it, you turned into a zombie. But we've come a long way since the outbreak, thanks to the Z-Bear. This puppy delivers a dose of soothing electromagnetic pulses that keep us from eating brains. I'm Zed, and yeah, I'm a zombie. Today's the first day we can attend human high school. No more classes in a dingy basement. Change is upon us now that zombies have entered our school. Some people still think we'll eat them. Ew, nasty! Zombie germs! And, you know, it goes on and on. And the, the, the point of the story is the zombies are these poor people who are infected. And, you know, yes, they eat people's brains, but now they're okay. And they end up being the cool kids. And everybody else has to sort of grow into the level of acceptance that they're at. 
And so, and you think, okay, it's a Disney movie. Disney always does this kind of thing. But here, here, here's what happens, Jonathan. Human imagination continues to alter stories further and further from reality. Okay, and it started way back with the epic of Gilgamesh back in, in, in Assyrian times. Reality began when Satan lied, and that lie has come to all of this. Here's the problem. You don't have to be afraid of zombies because they're not real. They can't be real. They won't be real. It's never going to happen, okay? But what we should have a healthy fear and respect for is those who create and push the stories because you're getting them from somewhere. And the same thing, like we talked about demons last last week, and the idea that if you are looking to, quote, contact your dead relatives— if they're already dead and there's no life in them, can you contact them? No way. So if you're contacting something, what is it? And I would say, Rick, from our last uh, podcast, uh, fallen angels, spirit beings that actually lived for thousands of years yeah. and have actually known people and their own experiences and can trick people thinking that they're talking to their relatives. So we may be afraid of, you know, doing the zombie thing, and that's not something to be afraid of, but what's behind it is. Oh. That's what we have to be, be clear it's on. It's dark. Romans 6, 22 and 23. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So having been freed from sin, why? Because of the ransom price of Jesus. Now enslaved to God, in other words, attached in a way that we can't get out of, and nor would we want to. You have received a benefit that results in being sanctified, being set apart, being different than everybody else, and the outcome is eternal life. Because the wages, the payment for sin, is always the same. Death. It's death. Right. But God has a gift of eternal life through Jesus. Sin brings death. The gift of God brings life. How? It is not through the altering of an immortal life after death. It is through what you talked about earlier, Jonathan. It's through the simple thought of resurrection, the miraculous re-energizing of a life that was once destroyed. And that's a powerful thought. Oh, it is amazing that God knows the DNA of every individual that was ever born. You know, and, and it goes beyond DNA. You know, I used that example before, and that, that gives you the makeup. But remember, he can recreate all of our thoughts and, and, and the, the patterns of thinking so that we can deal with those things in the future. John five twenty eight and 29 is the simple truth about life, death, and then resurrection. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So it's very simple. All that are in their graves will hear the voice of Jesus and come forth. Now they're in their graves. From dust thou art, to dust thou shalt return. God said it originally. Jesus is verifying it here. And we've had many scriptures that put it all in order all along the way. No zombies, no disembodied spirits, no ghosts, nothing to fear, for all receive resurrection. 
doesn't mean you don't have to work to make things right, but you still receive resurrection. One last scripture, Jonathan, we're almost out of time. This is the Apostle Paul before Felix uh, in Acts chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing in everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written with the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So here's the thing that's so important to understand. If we're looking at life and death, and we're saying death is the absence of life, and a lot of Christian denominations don't assume that, why is Paul so focused on a resurrection if everybody was already still alive? It would not make any sense whatsoever. Okay, it is a it is it is, it is a clear cut focus on how the whole thing works. Jonathan, our final death defining fact: no walking dead, zombies, no ghosts to haunt, just the world of humanity sleeping under the curse of death, waiting for the resurrection call of Jesus. All by God's grace. All by God's grace. And Jonathan, as we wrap up, Trish handed me this question: How do they hear if they're dead? And that's the the beauty of the miracle is that what ends up happening is that's the re-energizing. That is the moment at which they are re-energized and given the opportunity to find life again. God reinstills life into them and they hear that call because God gave it to them. So folks, it's pretty simple. I know it's Halloween time and all of that and everybody loves the, you know, the spooky stuff and all that, but zombies aren't real. Okay, they're not real because the scriptures don't give us any grounds whatsoever for departed souls and disembodied spirits and all of that stuff. It's just not scriptural. What is scriptural is that God provided death as a as a consequence. Jesus bought the human race and the beauty is resurrection is coming. For Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, we hope you've enjoyed being with us today. Can zombies possibly be real? No, but sometimes I guess people think they're fun. Whatever. (laughs) Anyway, until next week, scriptures tell us the truth. Think about it. Folks, listen, we want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us and review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, we'll be talking about what can I do now so I don't procrastinate later. Now think about that. I was thinking about doing procrastination this week, but I kind of put it off because anyway, we'll talk to you next week.